so we are on James chapter 3 tonight, and this is about taming your tongue. And I'm in a room full of people who have no issues with that, right? All that comes out of your mouth is love and peace and kindness all the time, and, and uh, when people rebuke you, you're just like, I love you anyways, that's okay, I understand, right? Yes, yeah, so, so just know that this means a lot to other people outside this room. All right? Okay. Now, actually, this chapter is certainly for me and for any of you that ever opens the Bible and teaches somebody else. This is a chapter directed at those who dare teach the Word of God to people. So it's very sobering uh, to me and, and to any, any teacher. So we'll, we'll uh, cover that. All right, so let's open a word of prayer, and we'll dive into James chapter 3. Father, in Christ's name, we come to you, Lord, and we just want to out loud and vocally give thanks to you for your son, Lord, for your saving grace upon our lives. We want to thank you, God, for just all the meals we ate today, Lord. We don't want to think it came from some food factory or anything. We know that you fed us today our daily bread. Lord, we know that you forgive our sins, and um, so, Lord, we just want to lift you very high right now and set you as king in our lives to hear your word to us. And we pray for hearts that respond in just redemptive ways, Lord. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So it's always a good idea to, when you start a chapter, to look back how the last chapter ended and just see how they're, they're flowing together. So we had the very powerful section at the end of chapter two about the faith and works relationship. And I think we spent a lot of time trying to be as precise as possible <clears throat> about what James is saying about works because those that promote any kind of works-based salvation that have any kind of works at all in their salvific plan are going to go to that section of James chapter two to back themselves up. But if you rightly understand James chapter 2 and how James is using that word justify in different ways there, then you can see clearly he's simply saying that good trees bear good fruit. And if you're truly saved, you will have good works. It didn't participate in your salvation, but it's the outward expression of your salvation. And Mark chapter 2 is very helpful in that, where all these people are bringing this paralyzed man to Jesus. They can't get to him, so they lower him through the roof. The Bible says Jesus saw their faith. So it's this inward reality of faith. Jesus could see the outward expression of it because you don't dig through somebody's roof to bring them to Jesus unless you know Jesus can heal them, right? So that's outward actions uh, showed what, what, what the condition of their inward heart was. They truly had faith that he could heal. So that's how we ended. And now there's a transition that happens kind of abruptly to start chapter 3 where it says this, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So there's a stricter judgment for teachers because what you're teaching about is the one who is supreme truth. And if he's supreme truth, then there's a high responsibility for representing that supreme truth accurately so that the people that listen to you, are actually receiving truth. So it's no little thing to teach the word of God. It's easy to take the position of a teacher lightly in the church without considering 
its cost in terms of accountability. There's high levels of accountability for those who teach the word of God. Jesus warned, to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Luke 12, 48. So the words of Jesus and James remind us that being among the teachers in God's church is more than a matter of having natural or even spiritual gifts. There's an additional dimension of appropriate character and right living that are required of that, Bi of that Bible teacher. James found that this department of church work has become extremely popular. People were desiring to be teachers of the word because they realized that attracted crowds. So for wrong motivations, they would be teachers of the word. So James has strong warning for them. <coughs> so on judgment day, there'll be a special strictness in matters of your teaching the word. And you can see, I have quotes in your notes from a commentary by Moffat that you can refer to there. And now uh, Clark, another commentary writer, wrote, Therefore, teachers were both tested more and would, be, and would be judged more strictly. He says, their case is awful. They shall receive greater condemnation than common sinners. They have not only, this is false teachers, they have not only sinned in thrusting themselves into that office to which God has never called them, but through their insufficiency, the flocks over whom they have assumed the mastery perish for lack of knowledge. And their blood will God require at the watchman's hand. Now, you think about that and you go, people can perish from listening to false teaching and God will require their blood at their hand? Well, I think he's probably thinking of Ezekiel chapter 33 here. If you want to go to Ezekiel 33, this is how the first 11 verses start. And I believe I started this year telling my Bible department this section of Scripture and to see if any of them would quit or not. Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel says, And again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword come and t comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity." but the blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, the wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your own soul. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, 
Thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? All right. So this chapter is a chapter of warning. There's going to be a warning about a very specific sin in this chapter. And James starts this chapter by saying, if you're a teacher, you shouldn't take that very lightly. In fact, he encourages you not to desire the position of teaching the word of God, knowing you'll receive a stricter judgment. So now he's going to start unpacking how teachers should talk, and then he'll tell us how teachers should live. It's really a teacher chapter, but it certainly applies to any Christian. But the teacher's warned of a stricter judgment based on how we should talk and based on how we should live. So just to reiterate verse one, he says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Verse two, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man also able to bridle the whole body. So now James is, first of all, including himself in these categories. He says, we all stumble in many things. So James is a teacher of the word. James was the head of the Jerusalem church, the first church in the city of Jerusalem. James is the head of that church. And he's saying, as a teacher of the word, we shouldn't desire to be teachers of the word because it's a big deal. And with that big deal is much responsibility. It's a stricter judgment. And now he's saying, but here's the thing, we all stumble in many things, okay? Now, this word stumble here is, means to fall, but a fall that can come with a recovery. That's what a stumble is, right? It's not a fall to fall away and, and die. This is a, a stumble, a trip that you can recover from. It says, we all stumble in many things, and if somebody doesn't stumble in word, so now he's being more specific, if you don't stumble in word, you're a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. Now, he's not calling anybody morally perfect. What he's saying is, if you can get control of your tongue, then the perfect that you are is that you've mastered the most difficult part of your body to master. Your tongue is way more likely to lead you to sin than any other part of your body. You might think it's your eyes or anything like that. But as much sin that comes through our eyes, you have to know there's much more that comes out of your mouth. And the sin that comes out of your mouth is much more serious because that the things that you say are identifying to the listening world the condition of your heart. What's the overflow of your heart? All you got to do is listen to their speech, right? Listen to their words. Listen to what they say. Listen to how they say it. Listen to watch who they say it to. It's showing you the heart of that person. So your tongue is very much giving away your secrets in many ways. So if you're able to tame the tongue, you can tame your whole body, he's saying. That's the toughest one to do. The mouth exposes the heart. You're familiar with this from Matthew 12, starting in verse 34. Jesus says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? In other words, if your heart is evil, then your mouth is without hope. You're going to speak evil things out of the evil treasure of your heart. He says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil things. He says, but I say to you that every idle word men speak, they will give account in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. So we all know judgment is, is, is a judgment of the heart. But it says, what is justifying you or condemning you as your heart is being judged are your words. He really means it when he says, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak. He really, really means that. Okay? So by your words, you'll be known and you'll be judged by the words that you're using and how you're using them. Okay, back to James 3. Verse 3, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Now, He's comparing your tongue to a little bit in a horse's mouth. Big, strong, huge horse, incredible power is controlled by the bit in his mouth. Huge ships are controlled by a small rudder. He says, that's your tongue. The tongue is perfectly placed in your body that it can either bless or defile your entire body. Okay? The tongue directly is attached to both the heart and the mind. That's why it's so exposing of who you are. Now, for, con for, for contextual reasons, understand this, that I'm talking to a 2023 crowd here. Your tongue is even also revealed. Gosh, you're going to hate me now. In social media. That's your tongue. What you're saying there and how you're saying it there. It's screaming to the world where your heart is. It's part of what goes into this tongue teaching. Now, if the tongue is indeed so dangerous, then why isn't it a good idea to do what the monks do? They take vows of silence, right? That sounds like, all right, if this thing is so dangerous, I'll just not talk. But that is not good either. It's not good for the monks to do they became absolutely useless to Christianity, okay? So if the tongue is compared to a bit in a horse's mouth and a rudder of a ship, that means it's entirely essential. We have to be using our tongues. God gave us tongues for very good reasons, but we can take those reasons and turn them for evil. So the standard for your tongue, the Bible says, is whatever is edifying to others. Sometimes a rebuke is edifying, given with love. A rebuke with love is edifying, okay? But whatever's edifying is what should be coming out of our mouths. The tongue has been designed by God to bring forth great things, including the gospel. Praise should be free-flowing from our tongues. We can make or break somebody's entire day by a few words we choose to say to them, right? We can make somebody walk on cloud nine for an entire day by a sentence we choose to give to them, or we can ruin their day 
and, and, and hurt their heart for the rest of that day or longer by a sentence we choose to give them, right? You carry that power around in your tongue all the time. Everybody's this walking time bomb. It's like a hand grenade. Are they going to throw it at me or not? Just by the words that they're going to use to you. Okay? So God is vastly concerned about you controlling your tongue. Now, the um, verse 5, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Second part of verse 5. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Don't you wish James would tell us how he really feels, right? Okay, so listen to what he's saying here. The tongue is set amongst our members that it defiles the whole body. It defiles our whole body and it sets on fire the course of nature. In other words, Jesus is the truth. Jesus wants us to walk in him, to walk in the truth. And when we, when we only represent half of a story because it's the half of the story that benefits us and we don't share the other half of that story, we've taken truth and we've twisted it. Now that person that's listening to you, their whole idea of truth was just twisted and now they're hopeless to get any kind of genuine truth out of that situation because now you've just presented to them a twisted version of the truth and if they don't know that you twisted the truth then they're just stuck dealing with reality in a twisted version on whatever topic you're talking about you sabotaged them okay so even half truths or or just telling half the story and this is the problem with our country today is that's become the news media we're only going to tell you half stories, the half that benefits our ideology. So they're not giving you the news, they're giving you half truths. And there's not many, and then when you go, I wonder what else happened with that story, you usually go to other media outlets that support the half that you already got. And then you go, I've checked other places, and turns out I was right all along. With your half of the story, you were. And then you talk to other people about it. And they can't figure out why so many people are mad at you all the time. Right? Now, the only way people will ever know about Jesus Christ from you is from your tongue. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Words that are spoken. Okay? So the healing that brings somebody from lost, hellbound, separated from God to saved, child of God, heavenbound, is going to be coming from your tongue. And how you've represented yourself with your tongue is the credibility you bring into those conversations. Now, this doesn't mean at all that there's not a place for rebuke. It simply means this. When you're done rebuking, they should be able to say, I, I felt loved by you. 
I felt loved by you in that rebuke. You care for me. Because otherwise, people will, will, will agree that you're right but not admit to it because they'll never admit that they're wrong to somebody who they feel is just trying to make them feel bad for being wrong. So they're gonna keep supporting their wrong point and then you're gonna start calling them names because you're like, how could you support such a wrong point and you sound silly right now? You just, and then there's this insult. And now you're so steeped in sin that you've gotta get on your knees and repent. Our tongues poison the waters that we drink from. We drink from the very waters that we poison with our very own tongue. In fact, Paul, uh, James says, after saying, well, th this is the order he gives us to us in. He said, the tongue is set on, among our members that it defiles the whole body. That's where it's positioned. And sets on fire the course of nature. Nature cannot run its course. That's what I'm talking about. You've twisted reality with your tongue. So now nature can't run its course. There's this false nature that people are experiencing. And it's set on fire by hell. So he started by saying it's just a small spark that sets a forest on fire. And he says, where did that spark that came out of your mouth come from that set that forest on fire? He says, those sparks come from hell. That's the source. Verse seven, for every kind of beast and bird of, of, of reptile and creature of the sea, sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. God has given us dominion over the animals. We've taken that dominion over the animals and we have ruled over the animal kingdom in such a way that we can ride on top of elephants and have them push over trees for us. We can tame lions so that a man can stick his head in its mouth safely. You can train dogs that it's almost like a person you're talking to the way he responds, okay? We've been able to train all sorts of creatures, Mankind experiencing and exercising his domain of rule over the animal kingdom. But no man can tame the tongue. You think about killer whales. Man has communicated to killer whales so they can be like circus animals and perform for us. Killer whales. But those same trainers are probably in serious trouble just because of their tongue if they're not actively working on taming it. And if you talk to them about taming it, they would probably mess up a lot more in their tongue than they've ever messed up with a killer whale. That's what James is saying, okay? The size of your tongue makes it seem like this is not a big deal in your life when it's a huge deal in your life. James will put it this way. But no man can tame the tongue. Here's this description of your tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. If you told me about the most painful times of your life, it would be filled with a sentence that started with this, and then they said, and then they said, and then they said. You're gonna remember how that tongue was used as a sword to cut you open and bleed, make you bleed. Okay? The most painful times of your life are filled with wounds from a tongue. Okay? Much more often than throwing a punch or using a weapon. 
has been the wounds that have come from the tongue. It's an entire chapter. And by the way, he hasn't left the category of speaking to teachers. He's saying, you talk a lot, right? And if you know me, this is like my whole allowance of words, right? I don't talk very much when I get down off of here. But in any capacity that you teach, parent to child, teacher to student, employee, employer to employee, there's many different categories of teaching somebody, correct? Now, teaching about God is obviously a bigger deal, but if you have authority over somebody and you're teaching them, you're in much more of a position to make or break their day than if you're not in authority over them. But no man can tame the tongue. Your tongue is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Uh, commentator Poole says this, the poison of the tongue is no less deadly. It murders men's reputations by the slanders it utters, their souls by the lusts and passions it stirs up in them, and many times their body too by the contentions and quarrels it raiseth against men. And then a quick story was told about a woman who once came to John Wesley and said she knew what her, her talent was, and she said, I think my talent from God is to speak my mind. And John Wesley replied, I don't think God would mind if you buried that talent. Okay? My talent is to speak my mind. You know the, the parable of the talents, one guy buried his talent, right? Okay? John Wesley said, I don't think God would mind if you actually buried that talent, speaking your mind. James would have us mindful that every time we open our mouths to say something, we may be unleashing what the scriptures call unruly evil full of deadly poison. Are you prepared at this moment, this moment right now, or at every moment, to present your social media comments to Jesus Christ? Are you prepared at any moment to present it to him? Okay? Because... He can see them as you write them, just like he can hear you when you speak. Verse 9. With it, our tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Now he's getting at what the actual sin is. What the actual sin is. No matter who you're speaking to, they're in the similitude of God. So now you take God and you go praise, praise, praise. You take the similitude of God and you go curse, curse, curse. And James is about to call that hypocrisy because you can't see the image of God in that person. Okay? And you treat that person as if they don't have that image that they're bearing. Just be, for the simple reason that James says they're made in the similitude of God, that alone means they have already deserved our respect. Because what God has done in making them, right there they're worthy of your care and concern and respect. And your understanding that in the heart should be reflected in what's coming out of your mouths. Verse 10. Verse 10. 
He says, my brethren, these things ought not to be. These things ought not to be. Now, when we don't recognize the creation of God that's in front of us and that, that person, we don't recognize the fact that, like it said in Ezekiel, he says, I'd much rather you turn from your wicked ways and live. And the only way they can turn from their wicked ways and live is if Jesus ends up dying for them, correct? So God's willing on his part to have his son Jesus Christ die for that very person who may be wicked and may need rebuke. But God's so willing to show mercy over judgment on them, your tongue should reflect that you're following God that wants to grant them mercy rather than judgment. That's what they should be hearing is a call to mercy, a call to mercy. So how do you argue with somebody then? We're gonna be in arguments, aren't we? We're gonna be in disagreements, okay? And it's quite the art, it really is, the art of arguing because you can argue in a way where the person says, like if you said, I want you to know I disagree with you, but I really love you, they should be able to say, I know I hear that. I do hear that in you, I really do. I do hear that you love me in there. Because can anybody find a passage where you're excused from loving somebody for a certain reason? Well, what if they're our enemy? Anybody got a verse for that? Okay. All right. To have both blessing and cursing come from the same mouth misses the understanding that blessings from our mouth praise God and the cursings curse those who are God's similitude. That lack of understanding produces hypocrisy in us. Jesus has much to say about the hypocrite. Matthew 23. I counted in Matthew 23, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times Jesus calls people hypocrites. Seven times in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse, thir- verse uh, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Well, that's not hypocrites. Right. 23. Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. 25. Woe to you, Pharise- scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And then he says... Inside you are full of hypocrisy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he's saying to them, now they're actually speaking good things and they're acting poorly. And that lack of matching word to deed is making him call them hypocrites. James now is showing the hypocrisy of a Christian praising his God And then out of that same mouth comes cursing towards people. And we can see Jesus' emotion there towards hypocrites. And I already gave you Matthew 12, where Jesus talks about the treasure that's in your heart or the evil in your heart is going to be known by your words. Verse 13. Now that was how teachers should talk. This is going to be how teachers should live. Starting at verse 13, how teachers should live. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him, sh- let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. 
Now the word there, wise, that third word, who is wise, Sophia, that word is almost always applied to teachers or rabbis. Okay, and James starts this chapter with a warning to teachers. So now he's saying, who is that wise teacher among you? He says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So this is pointing us back to the very first verse. Let, let not many of you become teachers. And he, he warned against the tongue. Now he's saying, who's wise and understanding amongst you? Those that are wise and understanding amongst you are going to show up by their conduct and your works and your conduct are going to be done, as James says, in the meekness of wisdom. <clears throat> now, that's an unusual phrase in Scripture, meekness of wisdom. So the wisdom of the godly teacher will come in the form of meekness because a part of wisdom is to not take credit where credit's not due. Worldly wisdom's going to puff up the teacher. Wisdom from God is going to be described below shortly. So he's saying, if you're going to find the wise and the understanding teacher among you, or anybody, but this is really for teachers, your conduct. So the last, well, let's just say the entire time I've been married, 20 years, um, if Diana and I want to go have a glass of wine, we will drive miles and miles and miles away to do it. Why? Because my conduct means something. Okay? My conduct means something. And I've taught lots and lots of kids over the years. Lots of those kids, many, most of those kids are old enough to drink. So who knows who I'm going to see wherever I go. So we'll drive far, far away. Usually when we fly out of town, that's when we're like, hey, you want to have a drink? Wow. Yeah. Of course, we did that. And we, one time we went to Meissner Park and we're like, this is far enough away. And as soon as we got out of the car and started walking, we hear a whole bunch of teenage voices going, Mr. Shot. <laughs> and we're like, hi, we were just looking for a burger place. You seen the burger place anywhere? <laughs> All right. And we actually sat with them. There was a TGI Fridays there and we actually sat with them and had a good time with them uh, there that night. But why? why? I'm allowed to have a drink. You guys know that, right? I'm allowed to have a drink. Okay. So why won't I exercise my freedom in that? Because my conduct matters and I don't trust your opinions on my conduct. So I try to be above reproach. So I don't want some family to say, oh, look at Pastor Shot with the wine on his table. I wonder how many he's knocked down already. Because that'll stick with them, won't it? A false thought, they won't let it go. And they'll probably be thoughtful enough to share that untrue thought with many people. That's how it goes, isn't it? Why? Because the tongue's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Okay? So it takes some um, care and responsibility not to give people the platform to use that evil and that poison against you. Okay? It's a wonderful place to be in life when God becomes so big in your life that a freedom like drinking becomes so small. 
So small. It's not even a sacrifice, to be honest with you. Okay, it's not even a big deal. If God were little in my life, I'd be complaining left and right about it. I really would. Okay. All right, verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Now he comes up with these two motivations of the heart that go directly against meekness of wisdom. What goes directly against meekness of wisdom is bitter envy and self-seeking. This was easy to see in the Pharisees back in their day. Why were they so upset with Jesus? Why, when he would heal somebody, that instead of rejoicing over that person's healing, they would get mad at him because it was Saturday? Why? Because they had bitter envy. They envied him. They were rabbis. And Jesus said, you love to wear the long robes. You love to be called rabbi by the people. You love to be introduced to the best seats in the synagogue. You love that stuff. And now that the very person that you've been teaching about in your synagogues, in your position as a rabbi, he's come and now you're jealous of him. That's bitter envy. Envy that will drive a man who's been a religious leader over people and re has received their respect and honor for their whole lives. That bitter envy will lead them to want to kill the one they're envious of. And that's what they ended up doing. To kill him. That's how this stuff blows up. They were filled with bitter envy. Why? Because they were self-seeking. They were self-seeking. They wanted those positions of the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted to be recognized in the marketplace. They wanted to be called rabbi because it's a term of respect rather than being called rabbi simply because they were a servant teaching the word to other people. They were self-seeking. They were not other-seeking. They were not God-seeking. They were seeking positions for themselves. It rises from bitter envy. Envy comes when you are not seeking out the shepherding of the Lord. Then you become an envious person. When the Lord is shepherding you, the way David says the Lord is his shepherd in Psalm 23, and he says, the result of the shepherding of the Lord in my life is that I shall not want... So I don't, I don't need the positions. I don't need the good seats. I don't need this, that, or the other. I don't need any of that because all the things that create that neediness in me, the Lord has met that as my shepherd. He's filled me with that. So I stand here secure without needing any of that. So now when I don't need that, then when somebody else is... Is, is drawing a crowd and teaching people and, and pointing to God and all of that, then, then I celebrate. Then there's celebration, especially if it's Messiah himself, my goodness. Can you imagine not rejoicing over the one you've been teaching about when he comes, but rather you seek to kill him? Why? Because you allowed bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, and that will not allow the meekness of wisdom. It becomes a worldly wisdom. It's a worldly wisdom. It's a worldly wisdom that 
people can benefit themselves from tremendously. They know how to talk to people. They know how to charm people. They know how to influence people. But it's not to benefit them. It's all done from self-seeking. And if somebody comes along their side who's also self-seeking and very talented with their mouths to influence people, then certainly the first person is going to experience bitter envy. Whenever you're about yourself, you're vulnerable to being envious of others. When you're self-seeking, you're going to become envious of others. When you receive the Lord's shepherding and he fills you and he completes you, now you're in a position where you can celebrate the gifts and talents of others, even if they're the same gifts and talents you have, but they have a larger measure of it. Then you realize it's somebody you can be fed from and you can grow through. He says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, here's, here's why he doesn't want you to speak or use your tongue. Because you will boast and you will therefore lie against the truth. Boasting is lying against the truth because everything that's boast-worthy in you and me is a gift from him. And so when you take credit for it, you just shut out the gift giver, didn't you? You just shut him out, okay? And so you're lying against the truth. Verse 15, this wisdom, this worldly wisdom, bitter envy, self-sinking, does not descend from above, but it's earthly, it's sensual, and it's demonic. So first he says this type of wisdom is earthly. What I get out of earthly is this. When, something's earth, when you're being earthly, you're being short-sighted. Why? Because one of the things that I'm so grateful for is this. I remember when I first left Coral Springs Christian to come to Calvary Christian. This is 19, 2002. This is 2002. I left Coral Springs Christian to come to Calvary. I taught there about a year, and then one of the Coral Springs Christian teachers invited me to come back and address the seniors that were my students when they were sophomores or juniors, and now I'm gone and they're about to graduate. He invited me back to speak one more time to them. But I didn't know I was going to, I just went to visit. I didn't know I was going to speak to them. He's like, hey, why don't you speak to him since you're here? So I had nothing planned. I didn't think about saying anything. So now I'm literally walking up in front of them going, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? And the two words that came to my mind were eternal thinker, eternal thinker, eternal thinker. And so I wrote on the board, be an ET. And they thought I was inviting them to be an extraterrestrial, right? Okay. But I said, be an ET. And I started talking about being an eternal thinker. And I don't know if any of them listened, but I can tell you this. This is one time that I was kind of speaking on the fly that it ministered to me tremendously. Isn't that weird? But I realized how important it is to be an eternal thinker. That's the antidote of being short-sighted. In other words, you can make decisions in life that benefit you here and now. But then when it becomes where you face Jesus Christ, you're like, boy, that was dumb. That was self-seeking as, as can be. How different will the decisions be in your life if as you're making that decision, you say, how is this going to benefit me as somebody who's headed for eternity? How does this decision look in light of eternity? All of a sudden, you're going to see that your decisions become much more other-centered and much more servant-hearted when you're thinking eternally. When he says, 
your wisdom is earthly, it's short-sighted. It's for your immediate benefit, which almost always is a selfish benefit, because when we think in eternal terms, those eternal qualities always have us thinking about others. And you're only free to think about others when you're receiving the shepherding of the Lord. That's why I love Psalm 23.1. It's earthly. He says then it's also sensual. Sensual means it's coming from the appetitive part of your soul. For those of you who read Plato, this is your appetitive appetite. The, your appetitive appetite is what is, not, is indistinguishable from the animal kingdom. They're always living off their appetitive soul, part of their soul. Okay? They want to eat, they eat. They want to sleep, they sleep. They want to have sex, they have sex. They do whatever they want to do in the moment. And there's human beings that behave exactly like that, correct? That's coming just from their repetitive soul. There's, there's no divine spark in that at all. You're not separated from the animal kingdom. So you respond to your desires like an animal responds to their desires. That's sensual. It's a, you're, all that matters to you is your senses. Does it make me feel good? Everything's about feelings. Feelings are, feelings are what are leading our policymaking in our country right now. That's where all these movements come out of are people's feelings. Totally void of objective truth. Just how do you feel in the moment? We're going to make a policy on that. And that stops you from actually helping people because you're not allowed to say that they actually are wrong about something. Okay? Just reading an article on how we're to see obesity as beautiful. To see obesity as beautiful. Obesity is deadly. And how can you care about somebody who has something that's deadly to them if you have to call it beautiful now? It sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds polite. But it couldn't be less caring for that person. He says it's earthly, it's sensual, and then he says it's demonic, simply against God. It just means it's wisdom that not only did not come from God, but God's enemy is actually instilling that type of wisdom in people. Okay? Verse 16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So just like I said earlier, when we tell half-truths or white lies, or it, it twists truth so that people can operate in actual reality. They're always operating from a false uh, spot. It's unfair to them. And now this is saying, where envy and self-seeking exist, you're creating confusion. Because you'll never be able to promote yourself by saying, hey, I want what's best for me right now. You're not going to promote yourself. People will dump you, right? So you actually have to present yourself as if you're for them when you're really for yourself in there, right? So you're creating confusion. Because everything you're saying is based on false motives. You don't care about them. You can't tell them that. So you pretend that you're operating in their, in their best interest when they're not. Listen, you have real challenges, quite frankly, if you're a salesperson. It's so easy 
to talk to people about what's best for them. You're here to help them. I'm, you need to buy my product. But they don't. And I know that because I was a salesman. I was a salesman. I used to sell retirement plans for teachers. That was my first experience around teachers was I worked for an insurance company that sold retirement plans for them. First day of training, they gave me a script to do cold calls from. Now I'm working for an insurance company and the script said this, hi, my name's Bill Schott and I'm with the school board of Broward County, Florida. Lie, not with the school board. But they said they don't want to hear from an insurance person, but if they think you're from the school board, they'll listen to you. So they trained everybody to lie. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you need our product. What matters is that you buy our product. So you say anything we can to get you to buy the product. If you're a salesperson, you've got to be very, very careful. You've got to be very, very careful. Because where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. It's where they are. Verse 17, but the wisdom that's from above is first pure. It's free from all those manipulative statements. It's pure. Then it's peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's without partiality. Didn't we talk about partiality a couple weeks ago? These are things, your tongue doesn't seem like it's a huge evil. Partiality doesn't seem like a huge evil. But we're barely through with chapter three and both of those things are highly condemned. And it's without hypocrisy. We heard about hypocrisy earlier. This is a description of the meekness of wisdom. So he, he mentions that your conduct should reflect a meekness or your a meekness of wisdom. That meekness of wisdom is first pure, not a sexual purity. It means it's free from the stain of the bitter envy and self-seeking. It's not stained by that stuff. The wisdom that's from above is never a wisdom that is out to benefit yourself. It's out to benefit others, mostly Christ. It's then peaceable. Peaceable means you may have a reason to fight, but you find a way forward without doing so. It's not that you fail to move forward. You find ways to move forward without the fight. It says then it's gentle. Now this is the word apiakes, apiakes in Greek, and it's very hard to translate that word. They translate it here, gentle. One commentator, his best effort to translate this word, he says it's like a sweet reasonableness. And here's why I like that. Because one of my favorite verses is Isaiah 118, where God said, come let us reason together. It just rings with the sweet reasonableness. Because the first 17 verses of Isaiah chapter 1 is is an ox knows its master, a donkey knows its, its, its master's crib, but my people don't know me. And they start saying, because you don't know me, you're doing this sin and this sin and this sin. It's 17 verses of sin. And then instead of God saying, therefore, here comes the wrath of God, he says, come, let us reason together. It's this very sweet reasonableness he wants to operate with us in. And that's kind of what this word gentle means, that you have this sweet reasonableness about you says next that it's willing to yield, willing to yield. This willingness to yield is this idea of I don't have to stand up for my rights. I'm actually free to give up my rights to benefit somebody else, okay? I don't have to sit here and argue all day long. 
I have a right. I have a right. I have a right. I can instead say, I'm willing to yield. This comes from the shepherding of the Lord. That's where that strength to do that comes from. When he's shepherding you, to say, I don't have to fight for my right. I'd rather surrender my right for your benefit. Why? Because that's exactly how Jesus Christ treated you. He had every right not to come to the earth and die and be beat up by people, spat on by people, mocked by people, insulted by people, stripped naked, whipped, lashed, stabbed, and hung. He had every right not to do it. But he laid down his rights for a greater good. That's willing to yield. The wisdom that comes to you from God is a wisdom that makes you willing to yield. It is full of mercy, he says. It's full of mercy. You become full of mercy from your acknowledgement that you're a recipient of unending mercy. You received mercy yesterday, today, and you'll get it again tomorrow. You have constant mercy coming your way, and that recognition of that constant mercy frees you to be merciful. So he says the wisdom that comes from above is full of mercy because the wisdom that comes from above recognizes that without God being merciful to you, you would be lost right now. And understanding that makes you a very merciful person. It says it's full of good fruits. The wisdom from above is full of good fruits. It's not just in words, but there's deeds to back up your words. There's fruit that comes from your words. It says it's without partiality. And either last week or the week before, there was a big deal made about the sin of partiality. The wisdom that's from above has no partiality. Okay, in the first century, they used to pray a prayer that said, God, thank you, you didn't make me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And then in Galatians 3, Paul says, in Christ, there is no slave or free, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no male or female. So it's all equal in Jesus Christ. So your partiality does not come from above. The wisdom that's from above is without partiality. And then this word again, he says it's also without hypocrisy. There's no speaking half-truths. You even present truths that don't go in your favor. Sometimes the only way to get yourself off of a wrong position is to really be willing to hear the other side. What I tell couples in marriage counseling, when they're really, really doing a whole lot of yelling and very little listening, I say, their next argument, you're not allowed to speak until you articulate your spouse's argument to their satisfaction. Then you're free to speak your, your part. That way you know you've been heard, right? They've been heard, okay? That keeps you from hypocrisy just arguing your point because you just want to be right. You'd rather be a fool trying to make points that you know are wrong because you just don't want to admit that you're wrong. It's without hypocrisy. Wisdom from above is without hypocrisy. Last verse. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So this wisdom from above is altogether a practical wisdom. There's feet to this type of faith. It plays out practically in our lives. And you've probably heard me teach on messianic wisdom, the wisdom of the Messiah. 
versus the wisdom of Solomon, the very practical wisdom, and just in, in summary form, Solomon, you know, wisest man that ever lived, talks about in Proverbs, um, discerning the hearts, how to discern hearts. And he's always confronted with women that he's got to discern their hearts. And so he's always talking about the adulterous woman. You've got to discern her heart and flee from her. And then you've got to discern the heart of a virtuous woman. And you meet her, you've got to discern her virtue and therefore marry her. So flee the adulterous, marry the, uh, flee the adulterous, marry the virtuous. But Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is here. There's a greater wisdom than that Solomonic wisdom. Okay? And in that, he demonstrates that superior wisdom when he has an adulterous woman thrown right at his feet. The advice Solomon gives is run, flee her. Jesus doesn't. But rather he transforms her into a virtuous woman. It's a far greater wisdom, isn't it? Okay, it's transformational wisdom. It's the wisdom that's from above, that's peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, all of that. It's transformational. It changes people's lives. This is why... When you argue, 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 and you just want to be right, there's, do you ever see anybody transformed in that? Do you ever see a Republican and a Democrat debating, and one of them goes, oh my gosh, you're right. I'm totally switching my position now. It's never going to happen. Because they'd rather be filled with envy, self-seeking, and they'd rather be give the appearance of being right than being truthful enough to say, you were right on this one, and I was wrong, and now I support your, your position. Before I really dove into the Bible, to me, capital punishment was a no-brainer. You should not do it. How could you dare end the life of another person? How, how, how could you do that? And then I'm reading Genesis 9, and I'm like, that's not what God says. And I'm like, well, that's Old Testament. Then I read Romans 13, I'm like, ugh. New Testament also is very much for capital punishment. And I had to humble myself before God and go, I still don't know that I fully feel it in my heart, but because you said so, Lord, I'm going to agree with you. And as I've done that, what I've come to realize and become passionate about is the death penalty is very pro-victim. It's very pro-victim. The best way to honor a victim that's been murdered this, the judgment of his killer, his or her killer, is a value statement on the victim. If you let the killer go, you're saying, who cares about the victim? Okay? And what's interesting is, with the Parkland situation that we had, 17 families lost a child and I don't believe for a moment that 17 public school families were all, uh, all uh, uh, for capital punishment. Just not at all likely. But when he was not given capital punishment, he was just given life in jail, every one of those families had a comment that sounded like this. How could you value the life of that killer more than the life of my child? All of a sudden, they felt the heart of God towards it. That's a value statement on the victim, and God is very pro-victim. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm simply trying to say the wisdom that comes from the above is willing to yield. I had to yield on that one. And then once I yielded, the wisdom of God's position became very, very clear to me. Without being willing to yield, I'd be like, 
I don't know. God might have made a mistake. I don't know. Because I really think he should have checked with me first on this one. Right? So I love Isaiah 40. It says, God says, who has been my counselor? Who do you think I'm asking for advice up here? And nobody. He's omniscient. Right? And in his omniscience, he says this, especially if you teach the word of God. He says, watch how you talk and watch how you live. Because you spend your life representing me, and that's not a little thing. And all of you represent him, don't you? Everyone in this room represents him. Okay? You carry his name. The Christ name is in the description that you give yourself. I am a Christian. You're saying, I'm a little Christ. And a little Christ is all this world needs. Right? Okay? So be careful how you talk and be careful how you live because it's a big deal. Amen? Father, we thank you for this time, Lord, in your word. And Lord, this was just swallowing down a pill that feels bitter, Lord. It's a bitter pill to swallow because your word is a two-edged sword, Lord. It cuts down deep. But Lord, the cut is from the hand of a skillful surgeon, Lord, that heals and repairs and builds us back up again to have the heart and mind of you, God. So Lord, I pray that tonight we just would receive a cleansing from you, Lord. The, your word is a cleanse, cleansing water. We're purified by your word, Lord. And I pray it just washes over us and it cleans our hearts so much that our words change for your glory. Amen. You know, one thing I forgot to mention is the first sign to me that I was actually saved in my 20s was about three weeks after I started giving my life to the Lord, I went, I don't curse anymore. I, I, I didn't try to stop cursing. I didn't, never thought of I, I need to stop cursing. I just recognized that I stopped cursing. And it wasn't long after that I heard the teaching that the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I was like, God actually cleaned my heart when I got saved. And now the overflow of my mouth is totally different without any effort on my part. It was just the cleansing. That's all it was. I don't know why I thought you'd be